Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help all writers incorporate more authentic cops, crime, and criminals in their stories. For this episode, acclaimed author Karen Cleveland has stepped into the interrogation room just to clear a few things up. Karen's a former CIA analyst, and the bulk of her experience there is in counterterrorism. She has master's degrees from Trinity College Dublin, where she studied as a Fulbright scholar and from Harvard University. Her first novel, called Need to Know, was a finalist for the ITW Thriller Award, and her writing has been praised by the likes of Lee Child and John Grisham. Her latest work, Keep You Close, just released last month. Welcome to Raiders on the Beat, Karen. Thank you for making time to join me today. Well, thank you so much for having me. No, I'm, you know, clearly um, you're the smartest one in the room here, so I'm just going to try to keep up with the conversation. Um, I'm currently, currently reading Keep You Close, and this is an immediately intriguing novel. For readers who are, are new to you as an author, what would you like them to know about this effort? Um, well, thanks for saying that. I'm glad you're enjoying it. Um, you, you know, it, it, was a, it was a fun book to write. Um, it, it's my second book, and my, my first book, Need to Know, I really kind of tried to deal with the questions of sort of how well you know the people closest to you and what you mm-hmm. what lengths you go to to protect them. Um, so when it came time to kind of think about a second book, I I wanted it to be, you know, different, have a different protagonist, a different story, but uh, I, I realized I kept gravitating towards those same questions. So um, in this book, it's really sort of about a mother and her child and, you know, how, how uh, as a big secret and, and, you know, how well does this mother know her child and what would she do to protect them? Now, this book, uh, and the, the, even the first few chapters just immediately ring through with authenticity for me. Um, it's almost like uh, my mind and more my fears and some of my paranoias and hypervigilance are uh, kind of cut from the same cloth as Stephanie Maddox, uh, but she's a far faster runner than I am. Um, how, how did uh, Stephanie develop as a character and a protagonist for you? That's a good question. And I guess I I don't know if I have a good answer for sort of how a character develops. Um, I think that, you know, when I was writing this book, um, the Me Too movement was really taking off. And, you know, writing a book about a female in a a male-dominated field in a position of power in Washington, D.C., you know, I think I felt like I, I couldn't ignore the Me Too movement. And so she has some experiences in her past that sort of drive her decisions in her career and in her life. And I think it, it sort of uh, makes for a, a compelling story, I hope. Yeah, and on that topic, you've, you've put her in, in an internal affairs role, which is really unique and uh, fairly counter-tropish for a, a typical protagonist. You know, most, most IA folks, um, you know, are always thought of as being on the rat squad or, you know, the anti-police when you know, actually, I think, you know, it's a really important role for someone to be able to objectively watch the watchers. And knowing personally how much additional job stress that has to put on your character, I'm wondering how, how you decided to put her in that assignment. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I think those are tough assignments where you are, you know, working with people every day, but you're also sort of responsible for policing them. And I think there's definitely an added level of responsibility and, and stress and complications. And um, so I just thought that would sort of um, play in well with sort of the, the rest of the storyline and, and kind of determining who you can trust and who might be out to get you and, and things like that. Now, with 
both of your books being uh, standalones, as you've already mentioned, that they're you know different characters, um, and you know a lot of the a lot of the conversation you hear for advice for aspiring authors from the the on high sages typically is you know write in series so that your readers can fall in love with the protagonist and will come back book after book to keep up with the stories. What made you decide, or what made you want to write a totally different set of characters for this uh, for this second book? You know, it was just, I, I guess I, I like sort of creating characters and it just seemed like, um, you know, I, I really liked the characters I wrote about I Need to Know, but I, I just felt like doing something different and felt like kind of writing about a different character. And um, that said, some of the characters in Need to Know do make an appearance in this book. I didn't abandon them entirely. <laughs> so they, everything's in the same universe, just, yeah, different. Same different. universe, exactly. Yeah. Um, now, how did... In, in that note, how did, how did you go about making sure that, I guess, there was enough consistency or, or that, you know, readers who loved the first book would also enjoy the second book without the same main character? Um, you know, I think just sort of the fact that it did deal with some of the same themes and um, hopefully the, the pacing is similar. I, I think that people felt need to know was sort of, uh, it had a, a fast pace and it sort of kept you reading. And, and yes. I, I tried to kind of do the same thing with keep you close. And so I hope that those, those elements are consistent with the two books. A central theme of, of both of these is, as you've mentioned, um, I, I would sum up as like an insider threat, right? That on yeah. one, you know, you've got an, a threat inside your own home and then another, mm-hmm. you know, threat inside, a, you know, kind of your professional life. Is yeah. that uh, something that, that came up kind of because of or through your work at, at CIA or, or were you already kind of in that insider threat kind of concern before you started working uh, in that analyst role? Um, I mean, luckily, neither of these books are based on any personal experience I had. Um, but, but, you know, I, I think that when you work at the CIA, it is sort of something that's on your mind. You know, when, when I and that's actually how I developed the idea for Need to Know. When I was first starting out at the CIA, you know, I was hearing a lot of warnings about the mm-hmm. potential for foreign intelligence services to try to get close to you. We yes. all hear that. And um, at the same time, I met my husband, uh, my future husband, and, you know, he seemed like this great guy. So I was hearing kind of these warnings um, on the one hand, and on the other, I was, you know, dating this great guy. And, and so that was a thought that crossed my mind, that he might not be who he said he, he is. Mm-hmm. And um, I think luckily he's just a great guy, but but that's something that sort of stuck with me. And I, and I think when you come out of that background, you, you do sort of maybe not quite take everybody at face value. And, and you have to sort of think that people might not be who they say they are. So did you personally follow your husband or now a husband around in your off time or did you hire someone to do it for you? Neither, luckily, but uh, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully I'm not missing anything. <laughs> Maybe I yeah, should have. And that's um, on the, the, like the internal affairs side. That's one of the things that is always, uh, was always so amazing to me as a, as a cop is that, you know, we, and I, I imagine that it's a very similar paradigm at, at CIA that, you know, you have to be able to very intimately work with these folks and be able to trust them with not just your life, but also the lives of other people and national security and all, all these things that are much bigger than ourselves. And we're always 
you know, seems so surprised or caught off guard when somebody gets in trouble at work, whether it's for, you know, something small or something big, because, you know, our idea generally of them is, you know, that they're this trusted entity and we don't have natural suspicions or rather maybe they've just already bypassed those suspicions and they're on the inside and too close to us. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that the security folks at the CIA and FBI and, you know, our entire government, I think they're, they're top notch and they're doing absolutely everything they can. But, you know, I, I think it's, it's impossible to, to vet everyone, you know, 110% and make sure that nothing slips through the cracks. And um, I think the, the foreign intelligence services out there and, you know, just the bad guys out there in general, criminal elements and such, they're very sophisticated and very aggressive. And I think it often doesn't take, you know, it can start with something small. And um, that's what I sort of tried to deal with in my writing, too, that it's it's not, you know, one major thing and somebody goes from a good guy to a bad guy like that. You know, it might start out with something small. And, and that's kind of how these, these foreign intelligence services and, and these criminal elements get to you. And, and things can sometimes just snowball from there. Cops typically don't have foreign intelligence services trying to track them down or, or, or manipulate them. Um, but, you know, it's not all that uncommon for some of the cops here in Arizona or along the border or in, you know, any kind of narcotics or drug trafficking role to be uh, approached or if they step afoul to be extorted, blackmailed by, you know, the, some, like some of the drug trafficking cartels. But, yeah, it typically seems like it starts with, you know, the small little things, right, that, you know, it's a yeah. freak coffee or, you know, a minor indiscretion that that becomes okay that snowballs into something else. Or one of the one of the things that, um, you know, I typically saw with cops who did run afoul um, of this, you know, we don't run necessarily targeted by, you know, agents or foreign intelligence services, but, you know, occasionally like a drug cartel would find out that a cop had stepped astray, um, you know, and maybe kept some of the drug money. And now you're a criminal and they can either manipulate you or, you know, go ahead and greenlight you because that's how they treat criminals. But, um, you know, I would uh, imagine the, the paranoia level, especially at a place with all of the all the secrets and everything that's um, protected, like like CIA, that you guys would have to be exceptionally careful about, you know, who's coming in the door and what they know. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, I, I think it's all about sort of your vulnerabilities. And, you know, that could be finances, or that could be um, some sort of relationship or um, your family or something like that. And um, that's something else that I sort of tried to, to do in these books is kind of look at what these characters vulnerabilities are and how other um, how these, you know, foreign intelligence services were trying to exploit those vulnerabilities. One of my former uh, supervisors has has a theory that uh, that everybody has three lives, that they have their public life that you know ends up on Facebook, or that their acquaintances know about. They've got a, a kind of a more personal life that their close family or their immediate family knows about, their spouse knows about, and then they've got a secret life, whether that's you know something that's really malicious or, you know, totally benign and they, you know, paint figurines, but they don't tell anybody about it because, you know, they have some psychological hang up about painting figurines in their basement. And, you know, I think that's one of the things that's most intriguing about people is that, you know, we all, I think, have some capacity, some element of us that's, that's secret and private. And we guard that so carefully, but we desperately want to know everybody else's secrets. I think that's a really interesting point. And, you know, I wonder if social media has sort of exacerbated that split, too, because now, you know, you can choose to present 
what you want to the world and you know whether that's actually you or not um you can kind of put that out there and so in a way that almost makes it sort of easier to hide that that other side of yourself um, yeah i think the uh the the blanket or the uh, the insulation around that secret life is uh, a lot thicker than it's than it's ever been and uh especially yeah. with social media you end up looking i think at the highlight reels of people's lives rather than what their actual life is like and I think it really distorts our expectations of what's normal. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a really good point. Before I became a cop, I, I had always kind of thought that uh, local government was where all the kind of the Muppets worked and the state government might have a little bit more going for them, but that federal entities were like these shining beacons of, of best practice and efficiency. And after I spent a few years interacting with a number of agencies across the spectrum, that opinion reverse to some degree uh, now I, I would, you know it's just seems kind of that the bureaucracy became a lot more burdensome the higher up that that chain you went um i'm, I'm curious about what what your experience like was it was like at, at cia that you can at least discuss in an open format like this you know just between you and me you know i, I had a great experience working at cia um it was such interesting work it was so rewarding um, and I worked with great people, but, you know, you're right, it, it is a, a bureaucracy and, um, you know, not everything about it was was perfect, um, certainly, but uh, overall, for me, it, it was a really good experience. And I do have a lot of respect for for the people who are doing those jobs. They're, they're difficult jobs. There's a lot of, a lot of stress involved, um, yeah. a lot of risk in, in some positions. And um, so I, I definitely have a lot of respect for the people who work there. Now, long-time listeners and, and first-time callers of this podcast know that my my uh, first intro to the thriller genre was Hunt for Red October by Tom Clancy, and I've talked with a number of thriller writers with similar experiences, and to me, one, I think one of the greatest things that stood out about his writing was the previously unsung hero, right, the analyst, who's doing all this incredible work necessary to put the tip of the spear in the right place at the right time and for the right reasons, and I'm wondering how the CIA got your attention and you specifically ended up working for them as, as an analyst. Yeah. Well, um, so I was actually, I was, uh, in college when September 11th happened, I had just mm -hmm. started and, um, you know, that, that was just such a kind of a defining moment in our country for so many people and, and me yes. included. And then a couple of years later, a friend of mine was killed in Iraq. And those were the two oh, things that really sort of led me to, thank you, that, that led me to the CIA and just, I sort of saw it as my way of kind of protecting my country and doing something for my country. And, you know, as far as the analyst role, I, I think it's, it's a fascinating position. It's, you know, it combines a couple of the things I really enjoy reading and writing and um, just sort of thinking about things and trying to put puzzle pieces together, really, which is what it is. You know, you're taking all of these pieces of intelligence human intelligence, technical intelligence, everything, and trying to figure out what's going on and then sort of distill it into a clear picture for policymakers. And um, I just, I, I really did find it to be fascinating work. Now, I'm, I'm sure that the, the fictional portrayals that we all see of, of the CIA and espionage in general have, have incredible flaws, but they've become so expected that I think it just kind of gets the, the lies or the misrepresentations just kind of get carried on. Um, with with your true insider information, how how do you balance reader expectations of the thriller genre with reader demands for authenticity, especially when you're dealing with with any kind of uh, like strategy or tactics that you want to keep um, kind of close to the vest? 
with with need to know, you know, when I sat down to write it, it really, I was kind of writing it almost more for me. You know, I had no expectation that this was going to to pan out and that anyone was going to read it. And so I don't think I really had that as much in my head about kind of reader expectations. And it was more just me trying to write something that was sort of authentic and that did feel feel real to me. And um, so, yeah, I, I think that, you know, I think maybe coming at it with my character being an analyst instead of an operative, which is sort of what you see more in the genre, I guess. Maybe there wasn't quite as much pressure, I guess, um, to fit some sort of mold. She, she wasn't out there in the field kind of mm-hmm. um, toting a gun and, and taking down bad guys. She was more um, behind a desk and, and oh. doing work from there. And, and that is what a lot of people at the CIA are doing. And um, it might not seem as glamorous, but, you know, they're they're working hard and, and there's a lot of pressure in that job as well and a lot of sensitive information that you're privy to. And so, yeah, it's, it's kind of a different take than the operative protagonist, but I think it can be just as interesting. Yeah, and I think that it's um, underportrayed, especially given the the importance of it. And you know, I think that uh, you know the world needs more Vivian Millers and Jack Ryan's. And you know, I think that you know seeing more of those more realistic characters than I think just the kind of typecast ex special forces commander turned operative turned mercenary. You know, it just becomes a little a little routine. Yeah, and and I think that you know I. I enjoy spy thrillers, but I don't always feel like I can connect to the mm-hmm. um, main character. And um, so, you know, with my books, I, I sort of set out to just write somebody who is, you know, maybe relatable and who, you know, both of these main characters have families and they have family obligations and responsibilities. And, you know, that's something else you don't always see in the genre, but I think it's, um, that's real life. You know, the people I worked with, they had families at home, they had family obligations. And so I think that that's a big part of people's lives as, as well. That's not always kind of acknowledged. I understand that uh, Universal Pictures has acquired the movie rights to that first book you, you uh, brought up again, Need to Know. And I uh, think Charlize Theron is due to play its protagonist, Vivian Miller. Is that all still accurate? Yes, that is accurate. That is that's pretty fantastic. exciting. Congratulations. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to, to pick that up and read it as well. Um, the, the plot and the theme of the book are pretty close to my own paranoid anxieties, and now I have to get it read before the movie comes out. <laughs> yeah, it is, it's very exciting. She's such a great actress. Um, so it would be really, be really exciting to see what she does with the character. Yeah, I'm selfishly curious what that phone call was like when you found out that this there was interest in it. Um, it was so surprising because it was actually just a couple of days after we had, it, it was really, it was a whirlwind week. Um, my my agent sent the manuscript out to publishers. We had a contract within a couple of days and then the movie deal came a couple of days later. And, um, wow. you know, I had no idea that this was even a possibility. So uh, when my agent called to tell me um, that there was this interest, it was just, it was just a complete, complete shock. Very, very happy shock, but it was it was just so surprising and so unexpected. Oh, that's fantastic! Congratulations. It's a, I, I think you know uh, when I'm when I'm typing, I uh, I think I, I picture the the book playing out, you know, almost like a, a movie. And I think for authors, um, getting to see their own words, their own work up on a on a big screen is a, a really tremendous life goal. I think for probably all of us, if we were really uh, candid about it. <laughs> Well, it would be really, be really exciting. Now, I uh, wanted to uh, kind of circle back to your your new book um, on point of view and get your point of view on point of view. 
what what did you see as I guess the pros and cons of writing uh, Stephanie Maddox in in first person and and mixing that with uh, different points of view for other characters in this in this novel? You know, the first person just kind of feels more natural to me. Um, I enjoy reading books in first person. I think it kind of makes me feel a little bit closer to the characters or sort of more like I can put myself in their shoes. And I think that's what I hope that people do with this book is that they kind of put themselves in um, Steph's shoes and try to figure out what they would do in that situation. And as far as kind of the other, the chapters that are in um, in third person, it just, I think it helps sort of move the, the storyline forward because that is one of the limitations of first person, I think, is that you can't, you know, see what's going on outside of their perspective. And I think there had to be some things happening that Steph did not know about. So that was sort of how those chapters came in. Yeah, and I, I think for me, that's one of the reasons that I really enjoy reading thrillers more than a typical mystery is uh, I really like knowing what else is going on and having that additional stress of, you know, how is, when's the good guy going to find out about it? How are they going to, you know, escape this trap that I know about and they don't? It's, it's, it's really creates some pretty fantastic tension for the reader. Yeah, I think it can. One of my uh, recurring themes on this podcast is that it only takes about a decade of blood, sweat, and tears to become an overnight success. What was your journey like from first inspiration to published writer to, to now critically acclaimed author and, and soon to be up on the big screen? <laughs> it is it is a lot of work and it's a lot of, you know, putting yourself out there and just hoping for the best. And, you know, for me, it just, I it was very fortunate with how everything worked out. And, you know, it, it was certainly sort of having that CIA background, I think, helped me a lot. But, uh, you know, as far as kind of how I came to write the book, I, I love my job at, at the CIA, but I did kind of get to the point where I felt like I needed a change. And um, just thinking about terrorism day in and day out for years was sort of taking a toll. And I needed a change. I, I had young kids at home, so I, I really liked the idea of a job with some flexibility, um, you know, being able to work outside of SCIF um, and kind of more normal hours. And so it, this was something I, I just I went for. And, and I just I, I wrote this this manuscript. And um, luckily, things just they, they worked out very well for me. And I just feel, feel very fortunate that they did. Now, since you bring up SCIF, uh, one of my not so secret guilty pleasures is uh, uh, is the cop fascination with with acronyms. We do a, yeah. a lot of things that mirrors the military or tries to imitate the military. Maybe a couple of my favorites. I've talked about the acronym Muppet uh, on here before, but one of my other favorites is Double uh, LPOF, which is a liar, liar, pants on fire. Uh, <laughs> do you have any uh, favorite acronym that you're willing to share from your time at CIA? Favorite acronym? Oh boy! Oh gosh! You know nothing. Nothing jumps out at me. Um, but that liar, liar, pants on fire—that's a good one. I'd be able to pop that one. <laughs> I like do it. Have, do you have a, a writing mentor that helped you get started in this, or that coached you along the way? No, this is actually, and you know, I, I didn't even tell anybody besides my husband and my mom that I was trying to write a book. Um, oh, wow. I just, yeah, it was something I, I sort of kept secret and partly because, you know, I, I really had no expectation that it was going to work out. So I felt like, you know, it would be better to sort of keep it private. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, so it was, it was something I really did just kind of do on my own. Uh, do you have a, a favorite fictional detective or investigator that uh, you either, you know, read in, in books or watch on TV? Ooh, um, that's a good question. 
the only ones that are coming to, to, to mind right now are the freshest in my mind. And that would be um, some the uh, kids, kids book detectives that my, my older son is reading right now. Um, he's real into uh, to mystery stories and Nate the Great and that kind of thing. Um, and you know what? I know it sounds kind of silly, but those are some of the, the books that I loved growing up. And, yeah. you know, I, I think it is often those books in childhood that kind of inspire a love of of reading and storytelling and writing. And so, you know what, I might have to come back to, to some of theirs as, as some of my favorites. Absolutely. Now, that previous question to set up this this last one, which I ask of all the authors who come on the show, Karen, but God forbid it should come to pass. But if you were to wake up tomorrow and find yourself murdered, what fictional investigator, assassin, or revenge artist would you want working the case? Would you want Nate the Great or someone else <laughs> investigating your, your murder. You can pick anybody. It's it's your crime after all. All right. I, I'd probably have to go with somebody besides Nate the Great, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, what I want investigating. That that's a tough one. Boy. You know, so someone like Jack Reacher maybe or yeah, that 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 might be that might be a decent choice. <laughs> yeah, he gets a, a fair number of a fair number of votes on this show. The 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 recent theme has been uh, a uh, an unusual task force of a competent police or private investigator with someone like Jack Reacher to make sure that uh, the job gets done and nobody gets away. <laughs> oh, so, I like that. That's that's a good yeah. idea. <laughs> yeah, it's been really interesting lately. You know, uh, folks have been responding with something like, "Well." You know, I like Sherlock Holmes because he's a clever investigator, but if the guy gets away, I also want Mitch Rapp involved, you know, so. <laughs> yeah, you know. sure. <laughs> readers uh, connect with you and your works, maybe get updates on new releases? Yeah, I do have a website. It's uh, karen-cleveland.com, and I'm on uh, Facebook and Twitter as well. All right. Well, I, yeah. I greatly appreciate <laughs> your time today, Karen. It's been a, been a pleasure speaking with you, and I, I'm very grateful that you made time to share your expertise with us. Thank you so much for, for having me on. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyrighted broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and this episode's guest has been former CIA analyst and acclaimed author, Karen Cleveland. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.